you can hear me? Yeah, all right, all right, great. <laughs> all right, well, it is good to be back. Last week I was away with Rochelle, um, but I had a chance to actually listen to uh, the sermon because, of, of course, Patty was, was the one who gave it, so I do have to listen. Um, <laughs> not, not that it's a chore. Um, but it, it's interesting, though, because um, normally she does um, follow after when, when I have a chance to actually give the sermon, then she follows after me, but this time it's reversed a bit. Um, and it's just amazing how God works, because honestly, what she was talking about in the message that she was giving, um, you know, I listened a bit at, at Bible study uh, last week at Mike and Sandy's, um, and Madeline had mentioned something referring to something that Patty had said, I'm like, hmm, that's interesting, I'll have to listen to that and, and, and see what they're talking about. And then Patty was talking about the scripture that Mike had read before and how that fit with where she was going. I'm like, hmm, I have to actually look and see what, what they're talking about. Um, and it's something because I had had in my mind, okay, here, here's what I think, you know, would be helpful for us and what the Lord, I think, would, would say through me. Um, and it falls right in line. So when I listen to it, I'm like, oh, wow. I'm just amazed at how it all works together, put it that way. But at the same time, so glad that she didn't just actually just preach on the thing that I wanted to preach on because then I'd have been... I'd have been up the creek a bit. Yeah, it'd have been different. It'd have been different. So, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick up a bit um, in terms of, of um, similar topics. So, if you remember, let me give a bit of a recap. Um, so, when I listened to the sermon uh, this week um, from last week, I actually heard Patty actually describing the importance of keeping the unity, the importance of being united in Christ. Um, and the importance of those relationships within the church. Um, and she actually used a really neat illustration to, to me, which she talked about the social skills group that, that she runs with kids, and she talked about this is how we help kids make friends um, and develop their relationships. And, you know, you can apply the same template kind of anywhere. Um, you look for commonalities. You know, the first thing, you, you look for something that you both are interested in or something that you both do. Um, and I was like, wow, you know, I wish she'd have been around, she'd have been a therapist when I was a kid because this is stuff that, you know, I, I think, this is my opinion, I think a lot of times girls get this really quickly and the guys, eh, sometimes. Um, and I'm like, wow, sometimes I think my wife is using illustrations that really she's talking to me. And I'm like, that, that's, that's really neat because I can truly see how this is how we actually do develop the connections and the relationships that we have. I mean, within the church and also without, outside of the church as well. But she didn't just stop there. Um, because obviously within the church, we've got a commonality, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our commonality. And from there, we, we build upon that. But then it started getting me to thinking, but what about those outside of the church? You know, how do, how do we approach them? And we actually have a commonality there as well. The commonality may not necessarily be Jesus Christ, but the commonality is, but we need a savior. <laughs> we all come from a place, an attitude, a state, where no matter what it is that we do, no matter how good or how bad we are according to the world standards, still, we still need a savior. We still need Jesus Christ because no one is perfect. And if we ever forget <laughs> what it's like before we came to Christ, you know, there's some situations where I look at, you know, just as I go through my life, and, you know, you may see people in, in states and situations that are um, pretty bad, you know. And in my mind, in the back of my mind, I say, you know, if but for the grace of God, there go I. You know, that's just one of the realities that, that sticks with me. I, I tell people this all the time. It's like, you know, nobody would, would ever assume um, that I've, like, had, you know, situations where I would have almost gone to jail or prison. And I have, <laughs> you know, and, and, and people may not necessarily know and please hear me, it's not because I'm out there doing crazy stuff. I've got a family that's involved in some crazy stuff. And when I'm with them, as a young person, um, I'm a part of that element. You know? And there was one time, and I always tell people, if but for God's grace, I, I would have been facing prison time because there was a time when I was supposed to go home to my family, home home, my family family in Florida, where, I'm, where we're actually from, um, because there was a funeral. Um, and it happened to be during that time where the government set up a sting operation to take down some pretty high up drug dealers and that was one of my cousins and, and he was the guy who they took down. And I'm always with them when I'm there. And when I'm always with them, I'm always around that element and, and I'm always around that business. And they would have taken me just like they took everybody that day. 
um, and it's federal prison because it's, you know, you'll do that time. And the only reason I wasn't there was because I had a midterm that I forgot to tell the professor I had a funeral to go to, and this professor was my primary advisor, and he just didn't take any, he, he didn't take excuses. And so I'm like, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I can't make the funeral. There's no way I can justify to this guy um, having not mentioned this before and just not show up. And I made a decision to not go to the funeral, and that was a decision that, it, honestly, I'm standing here today because I made that decision. But I also realized, I don't know that that was actually Rick's decision. I think God was actually watching out for me because I was not very wise. And so I think we can all look back at situations where we realize, you know, no matter what the situations are with the people around us, I do think there are some commonalities that we can actually relate to and use that as sort of a foundation to, de to begin to develop relationships. You know, we can understand, we can, we can begin to understand what it might be like um, from the various places that people are dealing with. And then from there, what does it take to cultivate those relationships? How, do we be, how are we with one another? We have to actually interact. We have to bring peace. We have to bring grace, humility. Those are the things that it's not easy to do because we're very different. But it's something that the Bible commands us to do. And if the Bible commands us to do it, it's probably something that we don't do naturally. And these are the things that, yes, it's easy to say in terms of, yes, if we do these things, then we'll grow and develop together and we'll achieve that unity. But it's not actually easy to practice. Well, I want to build on what Patty was talking about with that. And I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and it's a short, short passage. It's only four verses, one through four. And it's a very practical way to consider how we develop our unity, how we cultivate the type of relationships that God would actually have for us as brothers and sisters, cultivate the types of relationships that would also allow people to experience Jesus Christ through us, and then they come into the saving grace of Jesus Christ as well. And it's not, uh, I'm, I'm building upon what Patty said, so I'm going to add one piece to it that I think is really illustrated in this passage. And really, if I had to boil it all down, it would be this. There are needs all around us. Meet those needs. Respond to those needs. That's as simple as it is, and it's simple to say, but it's not necessarily the thing that we're inclined to do. So I want to unpack this, this passage for a bit um, and look at this because I think it has a lot to say, um, and I think the application can actually be really, really helpful for us today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16, this is entitled The Collection for the Saints. The Collection for the Saints. 16, 1 through 4, I'm going to read from the NRSV. 16, I'm sorry. Did I write 6, Frank? My bad. <laughs> 16. Better to go to it's all good. <laughs> all right. I'm going to go ahead and, and, and start us off then. 16, 1 through 4. This is Paul speaking to the Christians in Corinth. Now concerning the collection for the saints, you should follow the directions I gave to the churches of Galatia. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save whatever extra you can so that the collection need not be taken when I come. When I arrive, I will send any whom you, whom you approve with letters to take your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Simple, short, almost an afterthought when you consider the entire book of 1 Corinthians. But a really important verse to unpack when it comes to understanding just unity and, and the role of meeting needs. And so first, let's take a look at the context for this. And so it's called the collection for the saints. Paul is actually writing to the church, to Christians in Corinth about taking up funds, a collection, to be given to the church, Christians, in Jerusalem. Paul is writing this from Ephesus. So you actually get this sort of multi-region discussion going on right here, where Paul is basically saying to the church, hey, start to set aside some money, everybody, 
if you've got a lot, if you've got a little, just set aside a portion on a regular basis each month so that when I come, we don't have to take the collection then and there, it's already there. And then you can actually send this money to Jerusalem to actually help the saints who are in Jerusalem because they're actually dealing with some difficult things. And I don't necessarily need to be the one to go with you. I could if it's necessary, but I want you to select people from your congregation to actually deliver the money to them. Very, very simple, very simple. But I think if we step back and look at this, it's important to understand a few things in terms of why this has the impact that it does, why this is such an important piece, even though it's a short passage of scripture, it's an important piece for how God actually brought unity within the body, within the Christians, across regions. If you look at the context, why would there be a need for a collection for people in Jerusalem? Well, first of all, what you have in, going on in Jerusalem is actually a situation that was talked about in Acts. And the situation is this. People are suffering. The Jews in Jerusalem are suffering. Now, they have a history of going through difficulty. They have a history of calamity. Part of how God has always dealt with them was, when you turn away from me, then things are going to happen that cause, you to, that cause me to get your attention and you turn back to me. However, this is a season in, in the life of, of the country in Jerusalem where there's a famine. There's a famine. And if we look at Acts chapter 11, verses 27, this is actually predicted. It says, at that time, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine over all the world, and this took place during the reign of Claudius. The disciples determined that according to their ability, each would send relief to the believers living in Judea. This they did, sending it to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And that Saul is the Paul, who's actually the author of what we're reading today. So... It's interesting because God actually gives people a heads up that there's going to be a famine coming. And this famine was not a small one-season famine. This was a famine that actually lasted a good amount of years. And as a result of this famine, what happened in Jerusalem was there was severe lack. Now, it says over all the world, so this famine actually hit more places than just Jerusalem. But keep in mind, at this point in time in history, Jerusalem is actually economically poorer than a lot of the regions around it. It's situated in a place where it's not necessarily the trade route, um, but it just has great significance in terms of the, its religiousness and its uh, historical significance to the Jews and to, to a number of people. So it's an important city, but it's not necessarily the place of commerce. And so when you get a famine that hits the entire region, of course, everybody takes a hit. When you have less food, you have less resources, that puts a strain on things. God is actually telling folks this, not because the famine is going to be the problem. It's the people who are going to actually present the problem. Because what actually happens is, in light of this famine, the Jews actually decide, well, we're going to actually figure out how we can keep Jerusalem and all the people in Jerusalem going through this economic difficulty. So they developed a plan by which Jews from outside of the region, outside of Jerusalem, would collect money and send it into Jerusalem to support the poor Jews of Jerusalem. Now, you might think, like I thought when I first read, th read this, well, why would they not just leave Jerusalem and, and go someplace where there's, you know, more food? And, and honestly, in the back of my mind, I don't know if you've ever, have you ever seen or heard of a hurricane party? Okay, I'm, I'm from Florida, um, and I was actually raised on an on island out in the Far East, Okinawa. Um, and we would have hurricanes, we would have typhoons, hurricane parties, when you have calamity that you know is coming, it's been predicted, some people leave, okay? Some people do leave. Some people stay. Now that we've got, you know, news, you ever notice that when hurricanes come and they put the people on TV who are not leaving, how you always have that element of folks who typically they're young men in their 20s, and they usually don't have a shirt on, and they're out there in the middle of the, the, the rain, and, and they're usually doing jumping jacks and push-ups in front of the camera. I mean, it's just a fun thing for some people to do. I think they actually need a challenge. Hurricane parties. Some people don't leave. And I have very little sympathy, <laughs> I have very little sympathy <laughs> for the folks who, who do that, okay, who do that, who don't leave. 
But this is actually a bit different, okay? These are people who don't leave Jerusalem because they cannot leave Jerusalem. If you look at Acts and, and the times in the first century church, Jerusalem is absolutely important. But as a result of the Jews being scattered over the years throughout the different regions, a lot of Jews wanted to get back to Jerusalem. That is the home. And what they would do is they would live their lives in the various regions that they've always lived their lives outside of Jerusalem. But as they become older people, they say, you know what, I want to retire. And they had a saying back in this time that says, let me die in Jerusalem, which means they would take everything that they have, sell it, move to Jerusalem, and live out their last days in the homeland. And so you have a huge amount of elderly folks in Jerusalem, just like you have a huge amount of elderly folks in Florida, <laughs> which is why a lot of people cannot leave. Okay, so we're not really talking about people who should go, but they are looking for a challenge in life, and they've chosen Mother Nature as, as who they want to challenge. We're not talking about that. We're talking about people who are actually quite vulnerable. Maybe they don't have the resources, and they, want, and, and they have to stay put, or it's very difficult for them to actually move. This is actually what we're dealing with. And so the plan was, let's support the folks in Jerusalem because they're going to need it. And so they would collect this money and they would send it in on a regular basis in order to support the poor folks who were there, the poor Jews that were there. This was not the problem. The problem was some of those Jews became Christians. Some of those Jews actually became followers of Jesus Christ. Now what we start to see is because there's scarcity of resources and we're having to bring money in, now we start to see people divvying up the money in discriminatory ways. So the money that's coming in is actually meant for all the Jews, all the Jews who actually need it. But then you've got some Jews who've become Christians, and as a result of that, people are not giving the Christians the same amount, or they're actually not giving them anything at all. And so the Christian Jews are being discriminated against because they are followers of Christ. So there's a level of persecution, discrimination, schism that is actually happening as a result of this situation. And this is what I mean by the problem is not the famine, because there is a plan to deal with that. The problem is the people. And even though it was many, many years ago, the same dynamics absolutely still exist today. Anytime we have situations where there's scarcity, funny things start to happen with people. We start to think differently. We start to circle the wagons. Do you know what I mean by circle the wagons? We start to look out for our own, and we start to get an us-them mentality, and we start to see the worst of that us-them mentality, because then we start to do things like keep the resources to ourselves, do things to set up so that we benefit and those don't. It's, it's the worst of us, but it happens everywhere throughout time, and it's happening back then. So the problem that we're actually dealing with is we have vulnerable people in a place where they cannot leave, dealing with a famine, and it's their own kinsmen, their own neighbors, their own families a lot of times, which are actually now ostracizing them, cutting them off from the very things that they need in order to get through this. And we're not talking about now they just have to go without, you know, things that they want, we're actually talking about food and sustenance. What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? Those types of things. And these are people who are vulnerable. And so there's a real need here to address that. And this is the situation that we come into, and thus, thus the need for this collection, because what Paul is talking about is we need to take up this collection and send it to the Christians, the church in Jerusalem, because the Jews in Jerusalem have this system already, but they're cutting out the church. And therefore, we have to take care of our own in this way. So this is the actual situation. And I want to make a little caveat with this as well, because I think a lot of times we look at people who discriminate and say, you know, bad, and we sort of demonize them. But, but you know, I, I want to say it this way. In some ways, I think I can understand why the Jews would actually approach Christians this way, especially back then. If, if you keep in mind, the Jews are people who've been through centuries, millennia of being dominated, conquered, sent into exile, coming back, returning, and yet God has preserved them. How has God preserved them? God has said, if you keep my word and abide by this, God is going to be faithful to his promises. And when you don't, that's when the calamity happens. And so these are a group of people who at this time are now sitting under Roman occupation, and they've managed to carve out a space where Rome allows them to still practice their religion. 
but they know that they've got to hold fast to what God has given them. Some people have actually learned over time that it is important to keep the law, keep the commandments, and we have to try to abide by these. And so then you have Jesus come along, and Jesus starts to do things with the law that the Pharisees are very uncomfortable with. Some ways, from their perspective, maybe Jesus is playing fast and loose with the scriptures. Scripture says, keep the Sabbath, don't do any work. Well, Jesus' disciples come by and they pluck the corn and it's the Sabbath and they're eating the stuff while they go along. Jesus is doing things like he's showing up in places where people are coming out of the graves and the tombstones full, full of demons. And say, like, well, what are you doing in the vicinity of graves and tombstones? Don't you know that that makes you unclean? And then you send the demons into pigs. What are you doing around pigs? And then the pigs run down and they die in the water. And now you've corrupted the water source with dead pigs. You know, it's just stuff that Jews would think, this is ridiculous. And Jesus is actually fulfilling the law, but those who've actually been trying to follow the letter of the law couldn't, but, but very attentive to, here's the problem if we don't, and we're in the midst of an occupied situation, it's very important that we don't have anybody come in and play fast and loose in this way. So in some ways, I can understand how even the Pharisees we're actually trying to watch out for their people, trying to say, hey, if we let this out of the bag, if we start to go down this path, you know, is this going to bring calamity for us? We can truly have some Pharisees that are truly wicked, absolutely, but you can also have some people who intend and mean well, trying to protect their own, but just not understanding the grace of God and what God has put before them. We call this not being able to see the forest for the trees. Drop you in the middle of the forest, hey, take a look around, but I can't see anything, the trees are in the way. Forest for the trees, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the law right in front of them, but not able to appreciate that. And so I think this is a situation where we can see how, number one, we've got Jews who are discriminating because, wow, if we let these Christians, the people who believe this, flourish, that could spell doom for all of us. Well, if we then pull back on some of the resources Maybe that would cause them to leave and go elsewhere in order to try to get resources, and maybe that's not a bad thing for us after all. I can understand how we start to think as people. We are dealing with a level of disunity, a level of schism all the time, that is not just coming from a place where we want to be wicked, we want to be evil. We're coming from a place where I think it's sort of in our culture, maybe even in our DNA because we're fallen people, where we naturally have a bent towards this. In any situation and circumstance can push those buttons and we can start to move in that direction and we don't even realize that we're doing it. Or we think we're doing it for, for good reasons, but yet it still continues to happen. And I think this is what Paul, and this is what the, the early church was up against. Situations like this. So, Paul is interesting then. Because for Paul, I think he recognizes the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is we have vulnerable people within the church who are suffering discrimination. And now this might be a little bit more me, that that reads this in the scripture. I see this in scripture in a lot of scriptures that I read. But I know that um, every time God is responding and trying to move, I can almost guarantee you, if you actually look at the scripture, you can find two things that are going on that actually gets God's attention. Not following and honoring God and not being humane to the people around you. Those two things, quite problematic, and God responds to those things. And this is another example of that short scripture, but I think if we unpack it, I think we can see these things. So the implication then, I just want to step back and, and say this. If you are a Christian in the early church, the implication of making the decision to follow Christ automatically results in the real possibility that you will suffer economically, financially, and materially is not connected to what we connect it to today that if you become a Christian, you can expect blessings, you can expect prosperity in some ways. I don't really know where that comes from. But I think the reality is to make a decision to follow Christ back then 
actually meant, wow, well, if you're Jewish and you've become a follower of Jesus Christ, then the people around you might stop patronizing your business. You might take that economic hit. You definitely will not have access to the funds and the resources that come in in order to sustain you within that community. It is a descent to the bottom of the economic ladder. It is guaranteed. And if there's no safety net for you, that's quite difficult. And this is the situation that they're actually dealing with. So there are problems in the first century church. And I think these are problems that we actually do face today. We do not actually have that situation here in our country where if we become a follower of Jesus Christ, where that means, okay, our businesses suffer, we don't have access to resources, we get fired from our jobs. It doesn't necessarily mean that. But I do think we face certain challenges in the decisions that we make. While the society might permit us to become Christians, I don't know if anybody's had the experience of being the only or one of few Christians in your family and when you made that decision to follow Jesus Christ, how people reacted, how people may have tested that, these are things that we actually have to deal with. I remember when I was a kid, and um, I, I first became a Christian, and I became a Christian because you know, my parents sent me off to church to get me out the house. And you know, I had good folks who brought me to Sunday school. I mean, and they were just consistent with that. And God got a hold of me early. And I remember after I'd become a Christian, um, my mother, who, who had not become a Christian, talking to me and saying, you know, don't you think that's pretty gullible of you to believe something like that? And I, I remember saying to her, and I think I was probably 12 years old, um, yeah, gullibility, I still might be gullible, but that has nothing to do with me being saved. I'm still saved. <laughs> and that's just the way that I understood it as a kid. It's like, Okay, you're, you're talking about my need to be more discerning, Mom, about what people are telling me because you don't necessarily understand this. And yeah, I might have something to learn from that. But at the same time, I found Jesus Christ in a way that actually is meaningful to me. And the two are quite separate for me. I was 12. To have your mother confront something that you believe and she and I have talked about this. She remembers this. Um, and I don't know how she carries it. I, I hope she doesn't carry it in a heavy way. Um, but, but Satan is not playing with us. <laughs> Satan will use your mother and you're a child in order to attack the very seed that God has actually put in there. And so God has actually got to preserve that somehow. And if I don't have it as a kid at 12 within the family to help me preserve it, then I had some saints on the outside who were picking me up every Sunday, bringing me and giving me that word that helped to protect and preserve so that would actually flourish, and I get to stand here today and be a part of you in this way. That, that's how God is. And so we have problems. It may not be the problems that we see reflected, but we still have problems. We have things that we have to deal with as a result of our faith, our decision to follow Christ. And so Paul uses as a blueprint something I think Jesus actually uh, laid out several times um, and it's simply serve the needs that are there, serve the needs that are there, and watch what God will do. If you look at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, this is the story of the Good Samaritan. We all know it. And, and I'll, I'll sum it up this way. Man comes to Jesus inquires of him, you know, what is it that I have to do to walk this walk that you're talking about? This is Rick's paraphrase, okay? What do I got to do to walk this walk and live this life that you're talking about? And Jesus says, well, what do you read? And he says, hey, okay, well, here's the things that scripture says, and you know, Jesus says, yeah, do those things. Yeah, but who, who do I do these to? Who am I supposed to actually, you know, show and be a neighbor to? Then Jesus tells this story about the Samaritan. Jewish person goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's how we know that they're Jewish. And along the way, he gets jumped. Rick's paraphrase, all right? He gets jumped. Some people rob him. They beat him. They strip him down. They leave him for dead. He's half dead. Along comes one of the Jewish person's kinfolk, a priest, sees this guy beat, lying naked, half dead, 
passes by on the other side. Along comes a Levite next, Levite, also kid, sees this guy, takes the long way around. Third comes a Samaritan. Now, the Samaritans and the Jews, they have a really interesting relationship. Talking about division and enmity. They are related, kind of like cousins, same blood, but different. And as a result of the, these differences, they go back through, through scriptures and they just have these situations where they're just on opposite sides from one another. Um, they cannot worship in the same place. When they're rebuilding the temple, the Jews do not accept the Samaritans' offer of help to rebuild the temple. And on and on and on, and so they really just have this break. It goes back to when Israel actually had the northern and southern kingdom. It goes way back. If you ever want to see real enmity, look for people who are, like, related. <laughs> okay? Look to people who are related and have a problem with each other. I, I kid you not, in the work that I do, I work in a lot of places, and I go to some real crazy, war-torn situations. You will always see the worst atrocities between people who are somewhat familiar with each other. It's not the folks who come over from another country and invade. It's the people who are a part of the same environment who actually have the schism. That is why the American Civil War was the most costly civil war in terms of lives. It is because brother is fighting brother. The stuff that they will do to one another. That is why the genocide in Rwanda was so horrendous, because it's this tribe and this tribe, but they're right there together. They, they're, they know each other. You get the worst situations when you've got that level of closeness, and then the schism happens. So you've got centuries of this between the Samaritans and the Jews. The last people who you would expect to actually be friendly and help one another would be these two groups. And along comes a, a, a Samaritan. And the Samaritan, unlike the previous two Jews, sees the guy, takes pity on him, has mercy on him, bandages his wounds, takes him to a hotel, stays with him for the night. The next day, the guy is still too weak, pays for the guy's care and says, hey, if there's anything that's needed when I come back, I'll repay you for it. Absolutely shows mercy to this fellow. And that's the lesson that Jesus gives this guy. Which one of the three was neighbor to the guy, Jesus asked. And of course the fellow says, well, it's the Samaritan, the one who showed mercy. Jesus said, yes, go and do likewise. Jesus is saying, we have to be a neighbor. But I want to step back and look at this because this is the power, I think, of why Paul does what he does. In Jerusalem, the Jews were discriminating against the Christian Jews. Their kin were being ostracized. That left a door for God to bring help from someplace that the Jews would not expect it. And where that help was coming from was not from other Jews outside. Where the help was coming from was the church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth was not, it was not Jewish Christians. It was Gentile Christians. The people who you would least expect choose to align with is actually where God is bringing this help from. And we're not even talking about Gentiles like, okay, you're just not Jewish. We're talking about Corinthian Gentiles which I don't know if you know anything about Corinth in this time. Corinth is like Las Vegas, L.A., and New York all rolled up into one. It's just shy of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the place where when people describe people acting like Corinthians, it, that is not a good thing, okay? That means you're acting out of debauchery. You're actually engaging in practices that most people would frown upon. It's that sort of a city. But yet these are the people that God is actually using to actually meet the needs of the, of the actual church in Jerusalem. Amazing, amazing. And so Jesus actually gives this blueprint. And so when Paul is giving this message, he's saying, take this collection. When you collect this money, I want you to actually go and deliver this to the church there. You show up yourself and deliver it. Can you imagine if you were the, the Jewish person in Jesus' story about the Samaritan, how your perspective and your feelings may change towards Samaritans after you've had an experience where your own kinfolk have left you for dead and the person who actually comes to your rescue is somebody like a Samaritan, the last person you'd expect, the person who you probably have some negative feelings towards. Do you know how that changes people when you get your needs met? 
particularly when you've been ostracized by the people who you hoped would be there. This is also why with the Samaritan woman at the well, it was so life-changing for her. Because here's a woman who's a Samaritan at the well who, if you can remember, she's been ostracized by her own community because she's had five husbands and the person who she's with is not actually her husband. So she's got to go early in the morning to avoid all the other people. And along comes a Jew, Jesus, and engages her, talks with her, actually has a real conversation, and doesn't let any of that stuff that he's very aware of what her situation is get in the way of actually developing a relationship, the thing that she actually needed. Life-changing. When you have the need and somebody responds to the need, you don't think and leave the same. It's a very, very powerful blueprint. Can you imagine what it was like for Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who have this need, and who shows up at the door with the money? Corinthians, Gentiles, saying, hey, we've heard of your situation. We've taken up a collection. We've come to help you out. Here, take this money, buy food. Take this money, buy the clothes that you need. Here's where God's provision is actually coming from. Everything that those Jews wrestled with about Gentiles, especially certain types of Gentiles, now God was confronting them with some things. And what God is doing with this, God is saying, hey, I need you to be unified, but I know how difficult this can be. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to meet those needs that you have so that you can, you can begin to really feel, feel one another in terms of how responsive I am to you. It really is God's doing, but God is doing it through people, but people we don't expect. I think we have to be open to this reality in terms of being vessels in this way. I think it's a great blueprint because through this, because Paul actually did this, and because the Corinthians actually followed through with this, there are a few things that actually happened. Number one, well, God's provision showed up in three ways church in Jerusalem that actually needed the resources, got those resources, praise God. And they had some very interesting conversations, I'm sure, when they're talking with each other and, and, and praising God in terms of where these resources have come, who they've come through. The last people in the world we thought we'd expected. God showed up for the church in Corinth because the people who they sent would have fellowship with Jewish Christians and then take that information back to Corinth. That was needed, okay? That's needed for some other reasons. Jews had a very difficult time. Jewish Christians had a very difficult time understanding how you could come to Jesus Christ outside of the starting point of the Jewish tradition. That was Paul's whole struggle in his ministry. He had to defend his ministry repeatedly because he's out spreading the gospel and evangelizing to Gentiles. Well, the Jews were like, you know what? Jesus is Jewish, and everything that we understand about Jesus, we're on board with. But how do you get to Jesus from outside of the Jewish context? They, they just couldn't fathom that. It was very difficult for them. God had to give Peter dreams <laughs> that says, this is okay. You know, go to the Gentiles. It is all right. God had to show up in ways because that's very difficult. We, we kind of get set in our ways in terms of our traditions and our customs. It is not easy. And this is what God is trying to overcome. And so that unity that needed to be cultivated between those congregations, God was doing that through this. And finally, what God was doing was actually addressing Paul's need. Paul's whole frustration, the thing that he always had to defend was, hey, this message is for the Gentile believers as well. And you had people in the church, the Jewish church, who would actually block that. God actually worked it out then to say, you know, this is validation. The Jewish church leaders eventually started to validate the ministry of Paul to the Gentiles through these acts, through getting Christians, Gentiles, to respond to the needs of Jewish Christians. And this is how the unity was cultivated in the church. When we look at Matthew, Chapter 6, verses, let's just say 33, but there, there's a passage in there 
and I think we're all familiar with it, where, where Jesus is talking about, um, you know, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, about your clothing. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added. God's going to provide for that. This is exactly what is happening here. I am amazed at this, and, you know, I guess I shouldn't be. <laughs> I, guess, I guess we shouldn't be amazed that God actually comes through with what he says. God actually keeps his word. But here's what, what I'm amazed with. I hear these words as sort of like platitudes, scriptures. Oh, yeah, something to remember and memorize. Have you ever actually gone through a situation and lived it and walked it, and then those scriptures actually truly mean something to you? God has actually shown up in a way and brought a scripture to you that has actually sustained you. Jesus is talking in the early church. He's, he's saying to people who just a few years later are going to be in a situation where they don't have food, they don't have anything to drink, they don't have clothes to wear, and they're facing starvation. Hey, seek first God's kingdom, and God's going to handle all this. Don't worry. Every day brings its own problems. Worrying is not going to add a bit to it. Don't worry. How do you not worry when you're actually going through misery? How do you not focus on the misery when you're actually experiencing the misery? I don't know, okay? I'm going to just tell you that now. I don't know, but I know what God says about it. God says, keep your focus on me. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first the righteousness. I am your provision. And God comes through each and every time. Jesus, they say, spoke with authority. And this is one of the things that, that, that you know, when I look at scripture, it's just my experience of scripture maybe, but <laughs> this is maybe my pet peeve that I'm contemplating whether I should say this. I'm going to say it since I brought it up. Um, <laughs> we'll pick it apart? Okay. <laughs> when people say Jesus spoke with authority, do you know what it's like to listen to somebody who has lived the testimony that they are telling you? You know what that feels like when they have lived and walked the testimony that they are telling you, the weight that they have, how that hits you, how that stays with you. Everything that Jesus said is not coming from platitudes. It's coming from this is the experience that Jesus actually is pulling from and is talking about, which is why they're saying, wow, he's talking with so much authority. Normal Pharisees don't speak like this. When, when Jesus is describing things like the prodigal son who's been away, and then he comes back, and his father sees him from a long distance away, and they run and they embrace each other. You realize that Jesus, before he came to earth, was one with the Father, totally sufficient, everything was wonderful, nothing was needed, and then to experience separation for 30 years in a physical body, it's not separate, separate, but that, that is broken up for a season for us, what it was like for Jesus to anticipate the day when he would be back with the Father again, so that when he's describing a father and a son who see each other from a long ways off and they run in that embrace, you know there's something in that when he's saying it that nobody forgot when they heard that. You know that when Jesus is talking about certain things like this, that God is going to meet your needs. You know that Jesus was in situations where he actually depended on God meeting those needs. I was a part of a, of a trip once that went to Egypt, and there was a church that I went to called the Hanging Church. And, and in Egypt, down in Africa, this church, they built this church on the place where back when Jesus was a little baby, Herod put out an edict in order to round up the babies and have them killed. And a lot of babies died. But if you're a parent and you want to protect your child because your child is between a certain age and, and the authorities are coming for that child, most parents are going to try to save their children. So where do they go? These people went down to this place in Egypt. This was the place where many Jews came who had little kids because they didn't want to turn these kids over. And so this was a place where you can basically call it like a refugee camp where there was just a lot of people who've come down and they came out of Judea because they're trying to save their kids and so that, that means they had to stay there. They had to stay in this, this part of Egypt, in North Africa, 
uh, for a number of years until Herod died. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph were just one family who did that. Do you know what it's like when you're actually in a situation where you have an influx of people from another country who come in who are trying to escape some crazy situation? What that is like for those folks? I'm not just talking about here in the U.S. I work in contexts all around the globe where Syrians are coming into Egypt. South Sudanese are coming into Egypt. People are flooding into Greece in, in such massive amounts that it puts a strain on things. And then the resources get tight, and then people do their thing, which means they circle the wagons. And the people who are there are totally vulnerable. They are totally dependent upon the kindness of strangers to actually welcome them, give them what they need, help them get through that. So that when Jesus is actually then telling us in passages like, you know, one day at the judgment, we're going to have people on my right and people on my left. I'm going to say to both of them and the people on my right, you know, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I needed clothes, you gave me clothes. When I was in prison, you visited me. And people are going to be like, when did we ever see you do that? You realize that Jesus was in that situation? When, for those years that he was actually a kid in Egypt, that was the nature of that context. Jesus is talking about real things. That comes across not as platitudes, but these are situations where he watched his own parents have to depend on the kindness of strangers in order to survive, and he saw God actually sustain them in that way. God is faithful, and what Jesus is talking about and what Jesus is telling us is coming from real experiences. It's, I think it's just horrendous when people bore scriptures, you know, in terms of, oh, this is a scripture that I think, wow, this is amazing, and then they somehow extract all the life out of it and then act like Jesus is like, you know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy who's just, you know, looking up at the sky, talking in monotone syllables. I'm like, no, that's not how it happens. You know, that is not what it means when you've actually gone through something. God has shown up, and you're telling people, here's who God is. That is not how that is. And so I think this is one of these places where it's like, you know what? Jesus is telling us, please don't worry. God has got it. Seek first the kingdom of God, and God is going to take care of all these other things. And this is what Paul takes and he says, okay, we're going to focus on the kingdom of God. There are some needs that need to be met within the church here because there's this situation. And as Paul is faithful to do that, God is faithful to not just meet those needs. God is faithful to address the issue that Paul has, which is unity in the church, validation of the ministry to the Gentiles. God handles all of that through just his faithful response to needs. And I think that's a tremendous template for us today. So moving into the application of this, I do think, when I think about us, and this is who I know us to be, I've been here about 10 years now, and it's amazing to me as I get to know each and every one of you in different ways, I'm like, wow, I didn't realize that, you know, so-and-so is doing this, and I didn't realize so-and-so actually has a heart for this, and so-and-so really felt led by the Lord and is doing this, and, and nobody really knows about it, it's not broadcast, but everybody kind of is following God and sort of doing things that, that are sort of ministries, I would say, in ways. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's kind of who we are. And, and when I get a chance to hear things like a, a, a bit about the legacy of what it was like uh, under Pastor Lee Wheatley, I'm like, okay, he sounds like a guy who met needs. He just sounded like a guy who was just sensitive to that. If there was something that was needed, he was there. He showed up. He was there. I'm like, okay, so that, that's sort of in the DNA of this church. You know? And it's like, and that's probably why can I see what I see. And even folks who don't know Pastor Lee, because I, I didn't know Pastor Lee, people still do that sort of a thing. Amazing. But at the same time, I, I, I have to challenge myself, and I feel like God challenges me to say, okay, but in what ways are you playing a role where you may actually be the ignoring kin, the, the person who's a part of the body, there is a need within the body and somehow you're walking along and trying to avoid it and you never engage it. These are the things that actually God calls to, to my attention. And what kind of setup am I doing when I do that? Because I do think of, I, I mean, I, I think of people like Mary who I only get to see every now and then when she's able to make it through and I wonder how she's doing. And I know that there are those of you here who actually do follow up with her. Absolutely. And I can imagine, I'm like, okay, what, what, thank God that, that we have folks who do keep those connections, you know, but also think, 
well, what would happen if nobody actually followed up with her and then she gets a knock on the door from the Jehovah's Witnesses who actually will come back every week you know, and actually fill that void? You know, the, addressing a need that should be addressed within the body, but we're not. And that is not to point the fault at anybody out there. This is how God deals with me. I have a lady in my life who's 107 years old. 107. I've known her since she was 85. We used to go to the same church in, in L.A. She has no family. She's outlived them all. She's in a, she's in a uh, home at this point, bedridden, can't get out of bed. Uh, she's been that way for the past few years. Um, and it was me and a group of my friends uh, who I've gone through, through seminary with. And, you know, one of my friends was like, you know what, I really feel the Lord, uh, be honest, uh, I felt the Lord tell me one day, you know, there's this lady here, um, and, you know, go and say hello. And she was with a nurse, with, with a lady who was there who had brought her to church. And the nurse had her in a wheelchair, and the nurse says, hey, can you watch her till I come back? And the lady went out, we assumed that she went to the restroom. The lady never came back. Never came back. But my friend said, yes, I'll watch her till you come back. We don't necessarily think that that lady was a nurse. We think that lady was a setup <laughs> for what God would actually bring about for us, which is be a part of this lady's life because she needs it. She's got no family. She's outlived them all. She's the only one who's left. And I've been a part of this lady's life since she was 85. She's 107. She's 107. And still going. And she does not live close to me at all. You know? And these are the days when we don't have Bible study schedule where I'm like, okay, well, I can get out there. And I try to get out there once a week. You know? And it's those things where it's like, because she's got nobody. You know? And if, if, if we don't show up, and God has given us the call to do that, that leaves the door wide open for anybody to show up, you know, and, and take it a very different direction. And these are the things that I think, as a church, God is actually doing with us. When I think of why are we still here, why are we still together moving through the season in the way that we are, it's because I do think we're responsive to each other, but I do think the Lord is still saying, how can we actually do this? Paul actually had to take a very systematic approach. I don't know how many of us actually are dealing with situations where it's very difficult to come to church. Maybe we have to be more systematic with it. I don't know. But these are things that I really do feel like, you know, there are some needs around us all the time. We have to respond to those needs. That's, that's really the core of who we are. We've seen through Scripture, this is how God actually does it. God takes care of the needs. God takes care of our needs if we just get busy in responding to it. And just because we respond in... in I hesitated to say this one too, but since I'm up here, I'm going to say it. And my wife's not here to stop me. So <laughs> it is not easy to cultivate relations because we're different. Okay, we're different. Now, when I say different, within this small congregation, we have a number of different perspectives represented. I read your Facebook post. It is all over the, all over the map. Okay? And some of those Facebook posts are things like, wow, that would be real hard. For, that wouldn't fly where I come from. And I'm sure you will see some things uh, from my family that would be like, what? What's going on with that? And I'll be real honest, even with my own household. My wife's not here, so I'm going to say this. Even with my own household, I see some of my wife's posts, and I'm like, Patty, what is that? And she's got to then explain to me, you know, I'm doing this because of this, this, this. And I'm like, oh, okay, all right. That's my wife. We are one. And we are two different people, okay? So I'm just saying it is sometimes difficult because we've got a number of things that actually cause us to want to retreat to our own kind, our own way of looking at things, and just not bridge that divide sometimes. How do you get over that? Well, yes, bear, one an bear with one another in love. Be patient with one another. But if you want to change hearts, meet the needs. Meet the needs. If you want to see Samaritans, accept Jews. If you want to see Jews, accept Samaritans. Meet the needs. If you want to see Corinthians, be accepted by Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Meet the needs. 
So as we start to think about going forward through the season, one of the things that, that, that I really feel that God is, is placed upon my heart, and this is just upon my heart, recognize the needs that are there. Continue to respond and meet those needs. We represent a range of different people, even though we're a small congregation. But if we could do that here, imagine the example that that is for the outside world, which is really struggling with that. It really struggles with how do we bridge divides and differences that polarize us? The solution should be within the church. You can absolutely have different ideas and different ways of thinking about things and still be united in Christ. We have to be that example. And I think God gives us the tools. God gives us the example, and God gives us the command. So that's all I got. <laughs> okay, that's all I got. With that, um, I do want to take a moment um, just to, to, to pray. Because um, I do think there, there, number, there, there are a couple things. Number one, there are those of us who really do have needs, and, and I know that we, a lot of us are aware of the needs, but there may be some people who don't necessarily make the needs known or have yet to make those need no, needs known. Um, and I would encourage you, you know, consider us your family. Um, if there's any place where, where I would hope that it would be safe enough for us to bring our needs to one another, it would be within the body of Jesus Christ. Number two, we're going through a season where, where we're going to start to invite pastors who are trying to discern, hey, should they be the pastor for us? And, and vice versa, should they be the pastor that, that we have join us? And that's going to take place in the month of September. So you'll start to see some faces that come through, and that's the intention. We're, we're trying to explore that. We're trying to understand and discern that. Um, and I think what are we looking for in a pastor? You know, that, I think we all have different facets to that diamond. I think we all have different pieces that's important for us to voice and bring to that. And, and, and I think one of the things that I can appreciate, um, honestly, from, from my conversations with, with Frank and Bob and Marty, is you know, just understanding a bit about who we are as a church before I was even here, just in terms of, hey, this is just kind of who we are. That family feel that I got when I first came here, when Pastor Ernie was here, that didn't start with Pastor Ernie. <laughs> that started well before that. This church has been through seasons like this before and, and come through. You know, it's, really important, it's really important stuff. And that's one of the things where, you know, hey, it'd be great if we had a pastor who also could cultivate and move in that spirit as well. You know, help us to get to thinking about how do we actually apply this in the season that we'll be facing in terms of the discernment process. And, and that's what I want to pray for us for here today. So if, if you'll bow your heads with me, let, let's go to the Lord with this. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for, number one, Jesus Christ and the salvation that you granted through Christ's saving work. That we could all stand here as brothers and sisters. One, in Jesus Christ, and you've called us to this. Lord, but as we continue to, to live this life, as we continue to go through this season, Lord, we ask that we continue to keep our eyes focused on you, that you would give us a vision, Lord, that is consistent with how you see us, how you see those around us, Lord. And help us to respond out of love, Lord, and out of obedience to that, Lord. Help us to apply everything that you've cultivated in us, Lord, the DNA that you've placed in us as a congregation, Lord, to, to be family to one another, for those who may not have family, to meet the needs, Father God, of one another, for those where they may have been shunned or may not have uh, folks who can step in, where, where we can do that for one another, Lord. Lord, help us to not worry about what tomorrow brings, but help us to be wise, Lord. Help us to marshal everything and all the resources that you've given us, Lord, in wisdom as we plan our way forward, just like Paul planned the collection, Lord. Help us to plan our way forward. But Lord, you be in control and in charge of those plans. And those plans absolutely be based in faith in you, Lord, that you are our provision that you are to be glorified, Lord, and that we are to be a representative of Jesus Christ to the world. Lord, for those families who you would bring, for those people who you would touch, for those pastors who you would bring, Lord, give them discernment, Lord, give us discernment. Lord, help it to be edifying, even for those who you bring our way, who ultimately are not to stay with us, Lord. Help us to be edified by them and vice versa. Lord, help us to be a congregation, Lord, 
that can encourage and enrich our pastors, that can lead to their flourishing and thriving in you, that the pastors who come our way, Lord, would look to you and praise you, Father, because of the fruit and the evidence that you've birthed here in this congregation. Lord, I thank you for each and every person here today, Lord. For those who cannot be with us, Lord, because they are dealing with illnesses, they're infirm, they're sick. Lord, I pray that you just place it upon our hearts, Lord, to reach out, to meet needs. The, meet, the needs may not be financial, they may be. The needs may be time, the needs may be just attention, Lord. Whatever the needs are, Lord, help us to be responsive to it, and then we'll watch what you will do, Lord, and we'll give you the glory for it all. We thank you and praise you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.